everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Multnomah County DA, Mike Schmidt. Mike just uh, took over as DA um, last summer, but uh, officially was sworn in uh, last month. So welcome to our show, Mike. Hey, thank you. Happy to be here. So, um, for those who don't know, Multnomah County has Portland in it, and Portland has been, for quite a while, kind of the epicenter of protest. It's been kind of interesting there, huh? Yeah, you know, and it, uh, Portland has a, a proud uh, tradition of protest that goes back uh, for decades, really. Uh, but uh, it certainly has been very interesting this summer as uh, we have been a focal point on uh, the movement for racial justice and equity and especially uh, around the criminal justice system. So why Portland? I mean, why has that become kind of the epicenter maybe along with Seattle? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, some of it is uh, historic, really, um, that, you know, this is, in our culture to, to get out and demonstrate. Um, I'm not a, a great historian uh, in Oregon, but I know that for the last decades, I mean, we've had protests uh, around, you know, when people want to bring out um, Occupy Wall Street was a big one, uh, white, to protest white supremacy uh, and, and, and groups like that. Um, so it's, it's been going on for years. So I think we kind of had people who were, were ready to, to go out on the streets. They know how to, to do this. They want to get involved. I've talked to uh, grandmothers who, who go out and were protesting this summer. So, I mean, it really is just something that I think is, is, is cultural to our city. And so from your office's standpoint, uh, what has this meant? Because obviously you, you came in and kind of maybe lay out uh, the strange circumstance that you got elected and were almost immediately uh, took office, even though you didn't officially get sworn in until January. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I, it seems like a, five years ago at this point, but it isn't. Uh, you know, when I started running for office, there was no pandemic. And obviously, uh, we were uh, not yet going through one of the biggest racial justice reckonings uh, of our time, at least in the last six decades. So, um, you know, I got elected officially on May 19th with 77% of the vote, and I ran on a very progressive platform talking about how we need to eliminate cash bail uh, where people can be held in custody just because they don't have enough money or 
you know, end mandatory minimum sentencing, the one-size-fits-all, tough-on-crime, uh, you know, 90s-era sentencing schemes that kind of popularized around the nation around that time. So I ran on this very progressive uh, agenda on the 19th, and then, like you say, um, George Floyd uh, is murdered, uh, you know, a little over a week later, and, and that really kind of lit the match uh, in terms of, uh, of people taking to the streets to say that uh, it's too much, that uh, we have not been responsive as a criminal justice system, and there has not been enough urgency uh, to recognize that Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and so that started happening, and, and right about that time, uh, our chief of police uh, in Portland at the time resigned. So we got a brand new chief of police, and right on the heels of that, the then district attorney uh, announced his resignation, which would be effective uh, July 31st. So I was supposed to start January 4th. I ended up starting uh, August 1st. And and how did that work? I, I mean, first of all, why did he decide to resign all of a sudden? And then uh, how did it then end up that you at the office at that point? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I can only go on, on the statement that the, the district attorney at the time made where he said it was uh, the right thing to do for our community um, to, to step down uh, and to let the, the next person uh, step in. Uh, so that was his statement. And then uh, the governor called me and said, you know, would I be willing to, to finish out his term? Uh, and, you know, I just felt like, although I knew I was, uh, you know, getting thrown into a time when uh, at a time when things are extremely challenging and volatile that, uh, you know, I had a, a duty and, and a love for this community and, and thought that I could get in there and, and contribute positively uh, right away. So I said yes to the governor and, uh, and she appointed me and, and I was sworn in. I mean, in a way it makes sense, right? Because you, you're the one who's coming into the office anyway. So appointing somebody else doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in terms of the calculus, uh, I had just overwhelmingly uh, won the election, you know, only a, a couple weeks earlier. And so exactly right. I think from the governor's point of view, um, you know, having somebody to finish out the last five months of the then district attorney's term, it may as well be the, the person coming in uh, if, if, if I was willing to do it. And, and I was. So. You know, uh, at what point did things really start spiraling uh, in terms of the protest? Uh, did it happen immediately or, or did it take more time? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, the protests were, were very fluid. You know, the, the very early days, May 29th, uh, the very first night we saw, uh, you know, a lot of damage. Uh, some, some uh, you know, it, it turned uh, a lot of property damage. Um, so some stores were, had windows smashed and were looted, and, and our justice center was actually uh, lit on fire. But really, after that, um, it wasn't so much of the damage, but we had very large crowds, tons and, and thousands of people coming out in beautiful, peaceful demonstrations all over the city. Uh, and, you know, that that continued night after night uh, for approximately 30 days. And, you know, and there were small pockets here or there where somebody uh, would do something, light off some fireworks or something like that. But the vast, vast, overwhelming majority of people were out there, you know, having their voice heard in a peaceful way. 
Uh, and then about 30 days in, things changed. And uh, President Trump at the time, now former President Trump, decided uh, that, um, well, for whatever reasons, and, and I think it was because he felt like it would benefit him politically, uh, he would send in the troops and try to put down uh, this protest and, and these protests that were happening on a nightly basis. And that just blew things up. And, and the crowds were starting to get smaller uh, right before this. And that instantly just brought thousands of people back out onto our streets. And so we were kind of in the second phase uh, of the protest at that point. Uh, and it became, instead of being you know, completely focused on Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and police reform, it started, unfortunately, to turn into a, uh, an epicenter and, a, and a, an indictment of the current, uh, the then current uh, presidential administration and his policies. And they did things that just outraged people, showing up in unmarked vans and, and grabbing people off the streets, shooting people at close range with uh, impact munitions that uh, really seriously injured uh, people, giving young, one young man uh, brain damage that he is still you know, suffering with today. Um, visuals of, of veterans just getting batons uh, taken to them. And it really brought Portland back out uh, onto the streets. And that lasted for another 30 days. Uh, and it really was right on the heels of that, uh, of those two months, that that's when I took over on August 1st. Welcome to office, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So since you've taken over, I mean, obviously – you got elected on on things that were important at the time, uh, but uh, the world really changed very rapidly during the course of your campaign and then right after your campaign. So, so what was your focus then um, when when uh, you know August first comes? Yeah, so you know during the campaign, um, nobody ever asked me the question. Hey, Mike, how would you handle mass protests as a prosecutor? Uh, so, you know, it really was not in the, in the game plan of things that I wanted to do to, to look at policy reform and, and work on those things that, that I talked about at the outset. Uh, and so what, I, what was facing me when I started in office is uh, I had 550 approximately cases of people who had been arrested over the previously two months of, of protest. And so right then, and we're also, of course, can't forget, we're in the middle of a pandemic uh, where our court system is uh, slow necessarily. We're trying to keep people out of jail. We're trying to, uh, we're not bringing people in for trials so that people can stay socially distanced and healthy. So our, our system is, is slowed. Uh, and I've got 550 cases that I have to make a decision on how are we going to proceed. Uh, and so right away, the first thing I did was look at, okay, what I ran on was what really makes us safer as a community? How can I really focus uh, my resources? And, and I used that lens. And so I looked at the cases that were in front of me out of those 550, and I said, look, if you're damaging things, if you're you know, hurting people, if you are uh, lighting things on fire, if you're, you're smashing with us, that crosses the line. And there needs to be accountability for that. And that's where we're going to focus our resources. So I rolled out a policy on my, I think, 10th day on the job that delineated if you are arrested at a protest because you are there, 
You're, you're adjacent. You're, you're part of the crowd, uh, but not because uh, you're damaging something. We're not, we're going to presumptively decline to prosecute those charges. So for the most part, except exceptional circumstances, that's not what we're going to do. And there's a resource aspect to it because we'd be jamming up a system when we're trying to keep people out of the system. Uh, and also those cases would, would grind through and, and be costly and have limited to no public safety value. But there's also a, a recognition that people were out to express that the criminal justice system was not giving them justice. And I just felt like fundamentally using that system to then convict and criminalize that speech uh, would chill speech. It would keep people from expressing that very important sentiment. So we drew the line and we said, if you're there, uh, but you're not damaging things, you're not damaging property, those aren't the cases we're going to focus on. We're going to focus our resources on people that are being destructive, uh, and those are the cases we're going to be make. We're going to make. Uh, so that's how I approached it right off the bat, and uh, and suddenly, uh, within you know a day or two, I find myself on Fox News and uh, you know in a, in a Donald Trump speech and and, and all across as uh, you know the anarchist jurisdiction of Portland. Yeah. Uh- Welcome to your job. Sorry. Uh, you got to laugh, right? <laughs> if you don't, you'll cry. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, one of the things that I find really interesting, and I've been talking to prosecutors all over the place, is that you guys really are on the ground level of a lot of this stuff. And so, from your experience, who are the people that are actually causing the damage and doing the sorts of acts in in the protests to warrant a prosecution? I mean, are they hardcore protesters? Are they people that are there to cause trouble? Are they people on the right who are trying to cause trouble? I mean, you, you must have a pretty good idea of who you're prosecuting at this point. Yeah, you know, it was a, it's a mix. Uh, uh, you know, right? It's, it's, it's kind of all of the above. Um, you know, there definitely were people that were attracted from across the country uh, to come to Portland because of the way our city was painted uh, by the Trump administration on Fox News of being on fire and being out of control. And I can't tell you how many people, you know, uh, you walk around Portland, we would all remark like, wow, it's a, it's a beautiful day in Portland. Like, you know, nothing's on fire. And it was just, a, it's, it was a weird reality to, to have the national story be like Armageddon. And then we're just walking around. And I remember I, there were some folks uh, visiting from out of town in Oakland. Uh, and I was talking to them and they said, you know, uh, where do we have to be like, you know, around 10 o'clock tonight? Where, where should we be? And, and I just said, I was like, you, you could pretty much be anywhere. There's going to be probably one block where there are people that are gathering the protest. The, the city is open and, and safe, you know, with, in the pandemic context, but still. So it was just this weird kind of, um, you know, different realities that we're facing. But uh, so some people were drawn to that, right? And I think they just, some people we saw come from across the country and they wanted to be part of what they thought was this melee and this mayhem. And so there's a little bit of that. Then there are some people, um, you know, that I think uh, is they have a theory of change. And, and I think, you know, people can disagree as to whether it's a good theory. And, and, and I certainly do disagree. But they felt like 
you know, there's more urgency to drawing attention to the fact that, that black bodies are being uh, killed and harmed by this system than, than a broken window. And, you know, I, again, don't agree with that theory, but that was, for some people, that is a theory of change, that this would draw attention to this issue and that maybe it would get uh, people to act. Uh, and then there's, we definitely saw our share of alt-right uh, protests. We've had the Proud Boys uh, come in and stock our streets with uh, paintball guns and mace and, and looking for a fight. Uh, and so, you know, we had that uh, interaction happening as well. And of course, you know, um, really unfortunately, we ended up having an actual murder uh, during one of these protests where, where that got out of hand. So it really was a, a broad spectrum of people and it, and it kind of changed over time, you know, who it was that was attracted to, uh, to the criminality aspect of it. And, and today it's even a, a different set where uh, we see a, a lot of people who are, are trying to draw attention to, um, you know, anarchy and, and that is their uh, belief that they, the entire system's broken. And so now we see a lot of that type of graffiti um, and, and calling for land to be given back. So it, it's really just kind of morphed over time uh, to various groups who have been the, the ones who are agitating and creating the problem. But I also want to just put it into the context of that consistently that has been the mi vast minority and the vast majority of people who have been showing up uh, from the beginning have been peaceful and, and, and demonstrating and wanting their voices to be heard. So what are things like now? Ha have things calmed down? I know right a after the election there were uh, there was a flare-up, but uh, you know now that you don't have somebody gaslighting the situation. It's helped a lot. Uh, it's definitely helped a lot. Things have definitely calmed down. Um, yes, there was um, New Year's Eve uh, night was uh, a night where a small group came out and smashed uh, a bunch of windows downtown. Uh, and kind of just tried to recede quickly back into into the night. Um, and then again, on Inauguration Day, we had um, some people smash some windows of the local Democratic Party headquarters and then go protest uh, at the ICE facility. Uh, but again, these have been uh, much more small uh, groups. We're not at all seeing the nightly, uh, you know, uh, demonstrations uh, any longer. It, it seems to be, um, you know, when it has happened, it's been tied to, to some event like inauguration or New Year's Eve or, or something like that. And in those cases, it's been a really kind of small group of people who, who seem to have as a theory of change um, property destruction. So, you know, I've been, um, I'm in California, and so we've been covering a lot. Uh, in the last week, in fact, in uh, 40 minutes from now, there's going to be a town hall in San Francisco uh, where your counterpart, uh, Chesa Bodine, is uh, under a little bit of fire uh, for, uh, for all sorts of stuff. And then in L.A., George Gascon uh, has had an interesting time. What are things like in Portland from that kind of standpoint? Yeah, I've gotten to talk to D.A. Boudin, uh, and uh, we, we can share, we can swap war stories. It, it feels therapeutic uh, in some ways because we face some of the same challenges. You know, um, this idea that's being, uh, you know, purposely, I think, put out there that nothing's being prosecuted, that we're lawless 
jurisdictions that you can do anything you want within uh, in our jurisdictions and you won't be prosecuted for it. And uh, and how both uh, he and I have you know lamented that that's not at all true. Um, you know, so I think the the we are facing you know a, a small determined loud group that want to characterize uh, and conflate and try to make the case that that a reform-minded prosecutor uh, is, is bringing with it uh, crime. Uh, and they're using the pandemic. Uh, they're using, uh, you know, situations that cities across our country are facing to try to say, oh, well, it's, uh, it's because of this prosecutor, uh, you know, in, in the way that he's approaching things. Uh, when, you know, clearly there's, there's no evidence uh, to support that. Uh, and, and really, if you look at it, uh, a wide use of our resources focusing on violent crime and focusing on, you know, areas where people are actually damaging things as opposed to just clogging our system with, you know, these kind of low-level um, crimes that don't involve any of that uh, is a better use of our resources and, and a better focus on public safety. So we, we face similar challenges. I, I always appreciate talking to him. Um, and, you know, we just have to continue to uh, get our message out and get it over the, the social media. You know, I see a lot on Facebook and, and Twitter where people are kind of perpetuating these, uh, you know, we see Seattle's dying, Portland's dying, San Francisco's dying, this, this narrative uh, that for some reason, you know, our cities are dying and it's because of, um, you know, our progressive policies. So, uh, you know, I think that's not the case and, and we need to um, continue to get that message out there and, and get through the pandemic, obviously, uh, and then really start to focus on, you know, what does create public safety and, and reshape the narrative that way. So what is your background and how did you decide to uh, do all this? <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I definitely didn't set out uh, to be the district attorney of Portland. Um, that wasn't my career goal. In fact, when I was in high school, my social studies teacher had me write a letter to my future self uh, and tell me what I thought I would be when I read the letter 15 years later. And uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a graphic designer uh, working for an advertising firm. <laughs> so I, I missed the mark. Um you know, my background, I, I went to college in New York. I grew up in New York, uh, in upstate New York. I uh, went to a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. Uh, and from there, I went and uh, I taught high school in New Orleans. Uh, and that was a very formative experience for me. Uh, you know, I'm a uh, white, uh, cisgender male, went down to New Orleans, and uh, all my students were black. And, and for the first time in my life, I found myself uh, as is not in the majority uh, there. And it was, it was an amazing experience, and I learned a lot. Uh, and I really got exposed to, um, you know, my children's lives, my students' lives, and how, uh, how they uh, perceived things, which was fascinating, and, and, and how, you know, they were impacted by different things, like the criminal system. Uh, I taught for two years and then decided I was going to go to law school, and uh, packed up all my belongings, drove to Portland, Oregon, uh, right before Hurricane Katrina came through and really, uh, you know, hit New Orleans real hard. That was a hard thing to, to be away from, but came up to Portland, went to law school, and then uh, kind of, I, I went to law school to be an environmental lawyer. So I'm really bad at predicting what I'm going to end up being when I grow up. 
but became an environmental lawyer, or wanted to become an environmental lawyer, uh, and and just got an internship in the district attorney's office in my second year of law school, and and really liked that. Really uh, found I enjoyed the work, and thought you know this is an area I can make a difference, uh, and got a job there. Uh, worked there for about five years after the internship, uh, but then decided, you know, I'm not actually changing things, uh, and I saw a lot of issues that, you know, I kind of had. Some, some problems with in terms of everything that we were doing didn't seem based on data or research. It just kind of seemed random. Like the legislature just picked random numbers out of a hat to figure out how to sentence people to certain crimes. And it just didn't feel like, you know, we were have, I was having the impact I wanted to have. And so I, uh, I left, I went and worked for the legislature uh, and then to a small state agency called the Criminal Justice Commission which in Oregon is, is our sentencing commission, but it operates a lot like a, a state criminal justice think tank, I would compare it to. And, uh, and eventually the governor appointed me to be the director of that agency. I led that agency for uh, about six years, six, seven years, uh, and worked on all kinds of reform issues. You know, dropping the penalty for possession of controlled substances from felonies to misdemeanors, which, of course, now it's even uh, further dropped and been decriminalized by ballot measure. Uh, but then also, you know, worked on, um, you know, how do we bend the curve of incarceration in our state? And we worked on justice reinvestment programs and, and trying to incentivize counties to change behavior and how they use uh, incarceration. And so I finally got to start to see, like, here's the data, here's the research, here's what actually makes us safer. Uh, and when I saw that the district attorney in Multnomah County wasn't going to run again, I thought, you know, bringing that experience as somebody who had been a frontline prosecutor, but then somebody who's been working on the data, working on the research into what works. I got to travel the world. I went to Norway. I saw their prisons. I've been around our country, seen their prisons in Louisiana and other places, uh, and really got a sense that I could make a big difference. And so I ran and, and was successful. Yeah, and I can relate to uh, unknown career paths. When I was in high school, what I do for a living didn't exist. Uh, so I can definitely <laughs> relate. Um, so, um, you know, you mentioned some of the issues that, that you ran on. What have you been able to implement in the time that you've been in office? Yeah. Well, so obviously the <laughs> it was a, it was a, a quick challenge to, uh, you know, deal with the protest cases. Um, so that was a big policy rollout. And then, you know, working with uh, my office and others to, to make that uh, as effective as we could, that was that took up a lot of bandwidth. Um, I really have kind of approached uh, the beginning of my term, starting on January 4th, is, is what I've been working on. And so, so far, you know, we've worked on, um, we're right now in the process and the final stages of crafting a policy on how to, um, you know, change the way that we're sentencing misdemeanor crimes, um, looking at old warrants uh, and considering instead of letting warrants languish in our system for 10 or more years, um, you know, looking at, hey, maybe we can actually proactively uh, dismiss a lot of these cases and remove these warrants uh, after three years um, so that these things are not just hanging out there over people's heads and preventing them from getting jobs and uh, and housing. So those are a couple of the policies. We've got a couple more coming. Um, this my uh, my office traditionally has 
Um, there's a thing in Oregon statute called civil compromise, which allows a, uh, a prosecutor and a, or a, defense, a defendant and a victim to come to an agreement for certain crimes. Uh, and if the victim is okay and says that they are made whole, they can jointly petition the court to dismiss the case. And my office has had what they call a standing objection to that policy uh, for years and years where we just object every single time. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're looking at that and, and thinking, uh, you know, is it really necessary to always object to those? So we're going to revisit that policy coming up soon. Uh, I want to build a conviction integrity unit. Uh, that's a big budgetary ask. Uh, for me, for the county commission, uh, and we have a a bill, a concept uh, that we're working with the Innocence Project on uh, that would uh, allow uh, it would be a resentencing uh, bill that would allow uh, by joint petition uh, the prosecutor and defense attorney to petition the court to consider resentencing uh, certain people or people under certain circumstances. Um, so we got a lot going on. We're we're right into the beginnings of a of a long legislative session. We are a uh, very participatory in that, uh, weighing in on things like uh, ballot measure 11, which is our mandatory sentencing scheme change. Um, there's going to be a bill that that tries to tackle cash bail. We'll be participating and trying to, you know, advocate for us, our state moving away from from that. Uh, so we've been it's been really busy, pretty active. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about cash bail. I also uh, we we covered a story out of Oregon, I think yesterday. Yeah, yesterday um, on the ballot initiative to decriminalize drugs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, ballot measure one ten, uh, I supported that, uh, and it passed overwhelmingly uh, in. You know, I think with a 60 plus percent of the vote uh, passed in a majority uh, of counties in this state. Um, and so, right. And as of February 1st, um, the possession of user quantities of all drugs has, be, has been decriminalized. Um, so if you are now contacted by law enforcement with a user amount of drugs, instead of facing a criminal charge, uh, you'd be facing a, a citation, kind of like a, a traffic ticket, uh, which uh, you could pay, or in lieu of paying that ticket, you could uh, go to a treatment facility uh, and do an intake uh, evaluation and, and work with treatment, and then that would um, stand in place of you having to pay any kind of a fine. So that just went into place on February 1st, so uh, in advance of that, you know, my office, we've put together a policy that uh, that said, well, first of all, we're going to stop prosecuting any new uh, user quantities of possession of controlled substance, but then also unwind uh, a, a lot of them who are currently at different phases uh, within our system uh, so that we're not, um, you know, convicting people of any of those for that crime uh, any longer in Multnomah County. And... You know, one of the big drivers of the protests are uh, racial inequities in the system. Uh, how is Oregon doing on issues like that? And uh, what is your office hoping to do about that? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's been a lot of conversation. I'm on the governor's uh, racial justice council that is looking at um, and the, the criminal subsection that is looking at our laws. So we've been having a lot of conversations about what we can change in our system uh, to impact disparities.
disparity. So some of it is uh, sentencing law changes like mandatory sentencing. Um, you know, let's give judges discretion to make decisions on sentences instead of a one-size-fits-all scheme. Uh, cash bail fits into that. Uh, we know that uh, if you're held in jail simply because you can't pay, well, that's obviously inequitable to people who don't have money uh, or have less money. And that, of course, impacts our BIPOC communities disproportionately. So ending cash bail will be a big part of that conversation. Um, I think decriminalizing drugs goes a long way towards that. We saw a lot of disparity uh, in who was convicted of possessing uh, drugs. So that's a, a big driver of uh, disparity in our system that I think that we're, we're getting ahead of. Um, restorative justice, you know, can we start thinking about alternative ways uh, to hold people accountable? Uh, you know, there still needs to be accountability when, when somebody's injured, when there's a harm that's caused. Uh, but can we do it in a restorative way instead of the traditional uh, criminal legal way? Uh, and so we're looking into uh, restorative justice. We're actually talking to author Danielle Sered. She is going to come and present to our county, uh, I believe, either this week or next week on Zoom. Uh, and she wrote an amazing book on restorative justice called Until We Reckon, uh, which I highly recommend. And I've had attorneys in my office reading that in preparation uh, for her for her talk uh, to our community. Um, so, you know, I think we've got a lot of different things uh, that we're working on with our partners. It's a huge uh, issue and, and for all of us. Uh, it's, it's really kind of front and center of how uh, we're thinking about our work and, and even to the point where our chair, we're in budget building season right now and the chair of our, uh, of our um, commission has instructed all of us agencies who have to put together budgets that equity has to be front and center and how we're building our budgets. So it really is at every level of the work that we're doing, uh, making sure that we're doing it through that lens. And how the community is uh, reacting to what you guys are proposing and uh, what you guys have implemented? You know, um, so far on the proposing, uh, the reactions have been really fantastic. I've talked to community groups about our conviction integrity unit and what it would mean for making that more robust. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to having groups like the local coalition of communities of color, uh, potentially, and others. Um, they're considering whether or not they might uh, support our, our budgetary asks uh, to build that kind of a, a unit that will build legitimacy uh, into our system. So. Uh, great support there, great support for our resentencing uh, concept, you know, borrowing the law from Washington State and California, and I think Maryland also has it. Um, every time I talk to community groups about that, uh, people raise their hands and say, hey, sign me up. I'll go to Salem. I'll go testify in support of that bill. So I'm getting a lot of really positive feedback uh, about those things. Uh, about the policies, you know, I think we got a lot of uh, people were happy that we implemented ballot measure 110 months before we had to. Uh, you know, the protest policy uh, in terms of, you know, looking at uh, who it is that is being, uh, you know, put through the system for being involved in the protest. You know, when I actually get to talk to people and explain it to them, uh, you know, I think there's widespread agreement that, that, you know, where we're drawing the line in terms of criminalizing conduct that damages property or hurts people is the right place to draw it. Uh, so, you know, that's a consistent conversation that we have, and 
we've gotten support from uh, a, a the business community in some regards. Uh, there's a, a local business collaborative that supported us. There's the Democrats, um, the Latino Network, various uh, uh, you know people of color organizations in our community have all been super supportive of that. Uh, so we just keep trying to you know beat back the misinformation around that policy. Uh, so I'd say, you know, the community support of the policies we've rolled out uh, and the proposals we have for the future has actually been really strong. But I look forward to actually trying to build in more community feedback as a regular part of the way that our office operates. So that's kind of the next step is, is how do we make this an ongoing relationship where we're constantly checking in. And then last question, any pushback from police groups or uh the office DAs? Uh, the office DAs have been fantastic. You know, um, they have really, uh, first of all, they have been a, a really great group, very professional. Um, they do great work. They care deeply about the community, and I have had no pushback uh, from coming into office. In fact, I think people have been uh, really welcoming, embracing me, and, and excited to, to rethink and, and take a fresh look at these things. So, Internally in the office, absolutely, it's been it's been a really good uh, working relationship. Uh, externally, you know, we've had we faced some challenges. Uh, you know, starting off like I did, uh, announcing that I wasn't going to uh, you know presumptively prosecute certain types of crimes. Um, those were the crimes that, that the vast majority of people at the protests were getting arrested for: interference with a peace officer. Uh, which doesn't require any damage or harm to anything. It just means if a police officer tells you to do something and you don't do it or you don't do it fast enough, uh, then you are going to get arrested. Uh, and so that's where I said I'm not going to focus our resources. And that strained a relationship, uh, no doubt. Uh, Ten days into the job, uh, that that was a challenge. Um, but, you know, we've been working on it ever since. I've been working uh, with the chief, been working with his team. We have good uh, dialogue and conversations. And, you know, uh, there are other issues that are that are more important right now in our communities, like gun violence and homicides. And we're, we're collaborating, uh, you know, really greatly. In fact, I've been in several meetings with them today just on, on that issue. And we continue because it's such an urgency around it. So, you know, we're finding our ways to collaborate, build relationships, uh, off to a little bit of a rocky start. But I'm, I think that uh, we'll be able to work through that. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out from your busy schedule and coming on the show. Yeah, Dave, it was really great to talk with you. I look forward to uh, listening to it and listening to uh, other versions. Great. Well, that was Mike Schmidt. He's the uh, DA in Multnomah County, Oregon, which is the home of Portland. And uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.
justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.